Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the importance of teaching a full and unflinching version of Black history, and why the campaign to block it is reaching a peak at this moment in time. Clips today are from Today Explained, What Next, Counter Stories, Latino Rebels Radio, Here We Read, and All In With Chris Hayes, with additional members-only clips from At Liberty and Then and Now. I'm a teacher and a coach in Oakland, and I have been a teacher and a coach for the last 42 years. I've taught economics and foreign policy. I've taught rise of black nationalism, Caribbean coffee, cane and culture, African-American studies. And currently I'm teaching advanced placement African-American studies. Mr. Green, Tony is one of 60 teachers in the United States who taught the pilot version of the AP African-American Studies course. I asked him why teaching an AP course on African-American Studies is important to him. When I first started my formal education, I went to a school in a housing project in Vallejo called Flawsden Elementary School, and it was in the Floyd Terrace Housing Project. At that point, history was taught to us by very young teenage Black Panthers. It was at the start of their uh, Black Panther uh, breakfast program in about 1968, I would say. And growing up, the uh, housing project that my school was in, half of it burned down the 1968 rebellions that happened after Martin Luther King's assassination. So my uh, parents took me out of that school and they moved me across town to an all-white school. And at that point, when they started to refer to history, I no longer heard anything about what Black folks had done historically. And so my perspective on, you know, the truth and what I was being told, you know, really changed. And I started to learn history from a Western perspective, and it did not jive with what I had learned previously. And so my total focus in terms of education from that point forward was learning more about African-American history and studies. And when this opportunity veiled itself this past summer to uh, teach advanced placement African-American studies, I jumped at it. And the reason why I think advanced placement African-American studies is so important is because it's a national recognition of real history. Tell me, what does pilot mean in this context for you and for your students? It means that the students do not get advanced placement credit for college. They do not get college credit at this point until it's fully accepted by the college board. I currently have 65 students, so the students were very interested in the course and it's become very popular. I see the students as revolutionaries, especially if you look at the content that they are pushing out there. It's at a very high level. Even though your students weren't getting the college credit, they wanted to take this class. Exactly. 100% correct. Let me ask you what the students liked about it. When you would sit with a young person and they would tell you, I, I really enjoy this, what would they say specifically? I would say... The information that's contained that they had no concept of, they had no concept of, uh, give you an example, Abu Bakari II, the brother of the richest man in history, uh, Mansa Musa, you know, who was able to actually navigate the seas before the supposed father of the age of discovery, Christopher Columbus in 1492. Abu Bakari did it in the 1300s. They had no idea that you had the number of Islamic universities connected to Africa that preceded universities in Europe. Okay, the oldest continuous university, you know, the uh, University of Karine in Morocco, still open today. So they did not have any idea that Africans had access to this extensive knowledge that would actually put them at the forefront of knowledge, you know, scientific and otherwise, at the forefront of mankind's knowledge base. Let me ask you something, Mr. Green. Parts of this course really set conservative Americans on edge. It seemed like 
there were lessons that were more in the present day that had conservatives really concerned. What were those parts? Well, I would say one of the main issues that conservatives have is the idea of the Black Lives Matter movement. Historically, there's been a major concern since Reconstruction has ended about the intimidation of Black people brought on directly or indirectly by the United States government. And it perpetuates itself currently in the actions that the police have in relationship largely to Black males or sometimes in Black females. There's a number of cases that have caused Black activists to respond by creating this movement called the Black Lives Matter movement. Why that is threatening to conservatives, I would link basically to racism. The belief that Black people are not fully human, right, which is something that extends throughout the colonial period to the contemporary uh, historical period. Black people react with extreme anger. And I wouldn't say just Black people if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, which was an international movement. And so when they respond to anger, it's natural. Racists don't think that it's natural because they don't believe that Black people are fully human. They think that there's something wrong with us. But if you look at history, and this is the beauty of advanced placement African-American history, it tells exactly who we are as humans. So you are teaching this course. Your students are really enjoying it. You like it as well. When did you start hearing that there might be pushback about the content? And what were you hearing? During the summer, when we first got together at Howard University, you know, there was a discussion amongst you know, quite a few teachers, you know, over, you know, social discussion that in some states there might be pushback because of the content and because of the history of of certain states. You know, in terms of the most recent thing in, in Florida, a week to two weeks ago, sort of a discussion about, you know, what the guy down there would be talking about and how he would be, you know, attempting to use it to sort of leverage his own political ambitions, which I think exactly what he's doing. He's trying to leverage this idea. My family is from Florida. My mama's side is all from Florida. Okay, my grandmother fought off the Klan with a shotgun, right? That's Florida. If you look at Black history in the Americas, the first Black settlement in the United States, Fort Mose or Fort Negro in Florida. It's now St. Augustine. That was built by Black hands. We learn that in advanced placement, African-American studies. There's always been pushback from white racists in Florida. So that was sort of expected. Some of the teachers that were teaching it down there expected it as well. But, you know, politically, now all of a sudden we're starting to talk about this guy instead of talking about advanced placement African-American studies, right? And he's consuming a lot of the oxygen. I'm here in D.C., you know, for this celebration of this course. But the oxygen was actually sucked out, you know, over the last week, you know, for this guy down in Florida. And it's doing exactly what he wanted it to do, is cause this controversy. a lot of people. I heard about the fight over African-American studies in Florida, and I thought, well, that sounds like Ron DeSantis being Ron DeSantis. After all, Florida's governor has made education into a major talking point, rejecting any historical information his administration thinks might make America's children feel bad about themselves and their country. But I called up Jeremy Young, a historian at PEN America, because he says what happened with his AP class is actually an indication of something bigger that's going on in public education. It's just that this larger conflict is most clearly visible in Florida with something like this advanced placement stunt. So I asked him to start at the beginning. He said he first heard about the AP program offering African-American studies a few months back. 
And at the time, he was optimistic about it. It sounded like a really exciting new departure for the advanced placement program, which often focuses on courses that are universally offered in college core curricula, U.S. history, early mathematics courses, English literature, things of that sort. You're saying advanced placement's a little basic sometimes. Well, yes, because they want to make sure that the courses are going to be uh, accepted and needed in every college in the country um, when when they are uh, transferred. Right. And to to include African-American studies, it's an acknowledgement of the fundamental importance of the field. Absolutely. So when did it become clear that things in Florida weren't going so great for this AP African-American history course? In some ways, it wasn't shocking given other things that have happened in Florida around education uh, in the recent past, but there was not any public warning that there was going to be an attack on this AP course or rejection of this AP course until it was rejected. You know, there there was an, an article hmm. in the National Review quoting a letter uh, from the State Department of Education uh, declaring that the course you know, was not teaching legitimate history or content. Yeah, this was a letter from Manny Diaz, the commissioner of education in Florida, right? Right, from Manny Diaz. And the the AP received it. And that was the first uh, that this was publicly known that this was going to happen. Yeah, what was interesting to me about that letter from Diaz is that he cited specific academics in it. He called out Kimberly Crenshaw, who people may be familiar with. Some people say that she was one of the people to name critical race theory. He calls out Bell Hooks, who is a poet, feminist, black scholar, you know, I know who some of these people are. I wonder, like, is the inclusion of these thinkers some kind of indoctrination, in your opinion? The first thing to understand about this is that this is an African-American studies course, not an African-American history course. So the state is assuming that some sort of pantheon of famous political figures or celebrities in African-American history is what this course should be teaching. That's not it at all. Hmm. African-American studies is an interdisciplinary field that draws on history, literature, fine and performing arts, sociology, uh, and other uh, cultural studies fields. And it also has its own distinct methodology. And these uh, two figures, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term and the concept of intersectionality, and Bell Hooks, the the noted uh, African-American feminist writer, these are two of the towering figures in the field of African-American studies. And to learn African-American studies is to survey the thought of prominent African-American thinkers, among other things. And you simply cannot do that without including thinkers from all aspects of the spectrum and from all aspects of the field. Yeah, it didn't really surprise me that Ron DeSantis and his administration were picking a fight over this class. But it did surprise me what happened next, which is the college board announcing that they were going to upend their curriculum and not just in Florida, for everyone. Did that move surprise you? Uh, not really. Um, and I should know that the College Board has said that uh, publicly that they did not make any changes to the curriculum on the basis of the governor's comments. They just happened to do it right around the same time. Well, it, so so I think there's some truth to this. Uh, I think there's truth in two ways. First, it is true that these are dense readings, as the College Board has claimed, that, that some students may find them difficult. But it beggars belief that they truly intended to eliminate all of the the content areas that these readings focus on, because they have done that. They have eliminated the unit on queer theory. They have eliminated the unit on Black Lives Matter, not just the readings, but the entire unit. The other way that there's truth to their comment is this course was being criticized by uh, conservative commentators, by pundits, and perhaps by local figures as well, while it was being piloted before the governor got to it. So it, it is quite possible that the College Board made these this capitulation to these other critics before the governor jumped on the bandwagon. Because they saw the writing on the wall. Because they saw the writing on the wall. And the College Board has a history of doing whatever it needs to to maintain its status uh, as an accepted option in all 50 states. It turns out that before this back and forth over African-American studies, the advanced placement program twisted itself in knots over U.S. history. This was back in 2014. Conservatives complained the course was not pro-American enough. Some states, like Oklahoma, considered rejecting the class entirely. 
And ultimately, the College Board responded to that criticism by adding a unit on American exceptionalism, which said uh, only positive things about American history and culture. Whoa. So uh, the College Board has never been shy about being willing to defend its position in these states, really almost no matter what capitulation they have to do to make that happen. Yeah. I mean, when I read a bit about this decision in 2014, 2015, about the U.S. history course, it was interesting to me how explicit the changes were about race. Like one change that one person noted was that, you know, the 2014 version, the original version of this history course talked about manifest destiny, the idea that, you know, settlers from white settlers in the United States should move west, that it was, you know, part of their mission to do that, that, you know, this was about cultural superiority that, you know, originally this course said this was about white people making this decision to move west inside North America, and it was about cultural superiority among white people. But then when the curriculum was published, they sort of they got rid of the white aspect. It always surprises me when critics of these curricula want to take the explicit mention of race out of these courses because – if you look at the historical documents, and I'm a, I'm a U.S. historian by training, if you look at the historical documents from these periods, the white historical figures who were promoting concepts like Manifest Destiny were very open about the fact that they were doing it to promote what they would call the white race. You know, you can find innumerable quotes from senators and governors and even presidents making exactly this argument. It, they weren't shy about it. It's not something that's being inserted later by historians. And yet there seems to be this this squeamishness around talking about that fact when we talk about American history. I think the College Board censoring itself is so important here because when I dug in, and I think this was some of your writing, where you noted that when states have tried to ban things like ethnic studies in the past, like Arizona tried to do this, there have been court rulings saying you can't do that. That's racist. (laughs) That's motivated by racial animus. That's not allowed. And so a ban like what Ron DeSantis was doing, you can potentially challenge that in court and flip it around. But if the college board is censoring itself and responding to criticism and, and sort of watering down the curriculum, you don't get that opportunity to have that conversation and have a ruling on the other end. That's exactly right. And, you know, that is the way that this educational censorship has tended to work. When a, a law censors content in a classroom uh, or when, it, when a, a elected official censors a course, as we've seen uh, in this case, what happens is that the law is only infrequently enforced directly. Uh, we have seen some instances where some of these censorship laws have been enforced uh, and have uh, resulted in punishments for school districts or for teachers, but it's rare. What tends to happen instead is that the law creates a chilling effect on speech. The law, because of its vagueness, because it's so unclear to teachers, to administrators, what exactly is being banned and why it's being banned, it leads them out of an abundance of caution and the prudent management of risk to censor themselves and in the case of administrators to censor the teachers uh, who they supervise. And so it's not surprising to see the college board uh, fall prey to the same trap that many teachers are having to deal with. Jeremy Young wrote a whole report about these censorship laws last year. He calls them educational gag orders. These laws ban certain concepts like so-called critical race theory, and they allow parents to sue if they feel a school is in violation of them. Jeremy's only found a few examples of parents or other interested parties bringing a school to court for what's going on in the classroom. But he worries that it doesn't take a whole lot of legal action for these rules to have a chilling effect. So the ultimate outcome of this is to silence teachers and silence classrooms. And there was a RAND report recently that came out that kind of boosted this because it it surveyed thousands of teachers and principals and basically echoed this finding, said that you know, teachers feel like they need to hold themselves back, and especially black teachers, I guess because they feel more vulnerable. I'm not sure. That's absolutely right. The survey from the Rand Corporation found that over a quarter of teachers are self-censoring or being told to censor their content. The numbers are higher among social studies teachers, and they are higher 
among black or African-American teachers in states that have passed educational gag order laws. There, there are uh, 17 states where that's the case. So your your state doesn't even need to have passed a gag order for the teachers to be censoring themselves. It just needs to be like in the ether the way it is. But then it's worse if you're somewhere where there is a law. That's right. And there was a remarkable quote in this report where a teacher said, uh, the state told us that we couldn't teach critical race theory. And none of us were. But now I'm afraid to teach Frederick Douglass because I don't think the people in my community know the difference between black history and critical race theory. That's just a heartbreaking comment. And I think it, it really underscores the real effect of these laws, which is not to ban this concept that that. You know, is not being taught in in uh, in K through twelve classrooms, but instead to silence all sorts of teaching about African American history, slavery, racism, and gender and sexuality. Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, who make winter better with thoughtfully designed clothes that make you feel cozy at home, supported during outdoor activities, and good knowing that for every item you purchase, they donate another to someone in need. They use the softest materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy wintertime layers. And their slippers are soft on the outside, but even softer on the inside, thanks to materials like fuzzy Sherpa. And for the active among you, Bombas makes temperature-regulating clothing so you can feel more comfortable while jogging, snowboarding, or doing whatever you love most. I've been enjoying all of Bombas' materials and features for years now, but of course, my favorite feature is that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested items at homeless shelters, which is precisely why that's Bombas' focus with their buy one, gift one model. And so far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 75 million items of essential clothing through a network of 3,500 on-the-ground organizations serving their communities. So go to bombas.com slash best and use the code BEST for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best and use the code BEST at checkout. There's this racial reckoning that's happening in this country And unfortunately, while many of us are grappling with this, because I know in Indian country, and I know many people have responded to to this mass grave of Native American children that were found, and we know that there are many other Native American children who have disappeared, mysteriously disappeared when they went to boarding schools here in the United States. And then you you look at that the similarities in terms of what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the fact that no one even has a number on the number of blacks that were killed in this riot where white men came and, and burned down, planes flew over and dropped firebombs on Greenwood, Oklahoma. They don't even know how many people died. And they're searching. For these bodies, because I'm well aware that Iowa and three or four other states are all trying to pass similar legislation that won't allow us to have the kind of discussions we need to have in this country. One, to reconcile events like we're, you know, that are coming up and for this country to move forward. So I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts are. With respect to the unearthing of these 215 bodies of children who were formerly enrolled as students in these boarding schools. And I should correct myself. It's not enrolled. They were taken. Thank you. I was going to say formally enrolled is the wrong language. Uh, (laughs) No, I I caught myself. I caught myself. Uh, (laughs) They were forced. They were forced into it against their will. and, And actually many taken by force from their families at gunpoint, as I read the reports. What we need to really understand is that this is a culmination of work that's been done in Canada that we have yet to do in the U.S., which means that in Canada, at least they had a truth and reconciliation process that I understand occurred where they identified 130 schools, right? And they began to then understand what the issues were and what needed to be done 
and begin to have as a the name of the effort truth and reconciliation right tell the truth of what happened how it happened before you begin to start moving past and healing with community well in the u.s we're nowhere near that i mean from my understanding there have been at least 367 schools boarding schools identified in the united states so more than twice the number of the boarding schools found and identified in Canada, we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of forcing and coming to the truth that needs to be had, forcing that conversation to take place in the U.S., telling the truth, understanding the atrocities that occurred from beginning to end, from beginning and and snatching these young children from the arms of their parents, forcing them into these schools and the abuse. I mean, the abuse that's been unearthed in the schools in Canada from sexual abuse and rape of young girls, Indian girls, impregnating young girls, minors, and having those difficult conversations that need to be had. There's a striking correlation between our inability to be honest about this particular history and the project that is in play trying to position critical race theory as something other than it is. I think it's important to underscore and, and see a direct correlation, right? This uncovering of camp at the Kamloops Indian School in, in Canada, which was specifically designed to, as Don, you have have told us over, the purpose of these boarding schools was very specific and extinct. Kill the Indian, save the man was the motto that was used to justify these schools that would not allow Native folks to practice any of their traditions. Again, washing away and trying to control what a person can or cannot learn that is part of the heritage and the true history. I think the attacks on critical race theory are one, are are nefarious for that reason. I want to point out that critical race theory itself was an argument that came from lawyers with the core tenets being, one, that racism is socially constructed. Like, this is what critical race theory says, that race is socially constructed, not biologically natural. Two, that racism in the United States is a normed way of being, i.e. it has been part of our entire history throughout. And the third piece looks at to advance and move through a system, there has to be, and we have to take into account the times that we have moved forward has been because we have found a nexus of interest convergence. And then the fourth one, that we all have experienced different racialization, that we all have different experiences based on that race. And then one, that we have to be telling counter narratives to the dominant narrative, which does not tell all these stories, which is what we get our name from, counter stories. Those are just some of the tenets of critical race theory that say we need to look with a critical eye at the impact of race on lives. This is very purposefully missing from arguments to ban critical race theory, because if they were there, folks would be would say, what is the problem? This is us looking with a critical eye on how race has impacted our society. And I think it is being conflated purposefully in this conflation with, quote unquote, shame, right? Because our history is shameful. And we need to honor that and move forward and past that. And we've got folks who are trying to use this to distract from other things. I see a very similar project with trying to wipe away our racialized history and experience and the reality of those for the sake of the comfortability of the folks who are unwilling to look at our history, you know, in a real way. And the project that was trying to erase the cultural understanding and identity of Native peoples through these boarding schools. I see a very deep and clear correlation. Yes, and and the other part of that, Anthony, is the fact that so much of our society across our country functions on sound bites. Mm-hmm. So the folks are not taking the time to read and understand what you just said, mm-hmm. right? They hear a sound bite. Critical race theory is wrong. It's bad. It's harmful. It's divisive. Whatever other arguments that folks are putting forth, which are all inaccurate, right? But there's a, a foundational willingness to be ignorant of the facts to their own benefit. So folks who don't take the time to read past the headline or do any of the analytical type of 
discussion or exploration of the material on their own or with folks that are within their circle, they end up having this closed-minded mindset as well as a closed-minded environment by design and they benefit from it because then they don't have to talk about it and they don't have to be a part of it. brought up so many things that I just want to break down a couple because take me back like 13 years ago or 2009, take me back as someone who was involved in the curriculum, how it was providing value to kids in the district. But then you start seeing the Republican movement in Arizona, given all those names and others. And, you know, the buzzwords, right? La raza, Chicano, Aslan, you know, not American. Take me back. Why was it so important to do this? And what were the kids doing? And then how did they feel? How did you feel when this shit was going on? Because it was shit. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, it was just the rhetoric in and around. The quote unquote controversy was that, you know, we were anti-American. We were distorting history, including the lived experiences of our students. And these are all sound educational methods, right? We're not into historical distortion. We're into, you know, looking at primary sources, analyzing them. And these primary sources that we're looking at in these historical narratives as counter narratives to the mainstream narrative or the dominant narrative were a threat, right? Because we were exposing so much of the local Arizona history and the cultural genocide against, and the actual genocide against native peoples, against uh, Mexican origin folks contemporary issues that were negatively impacting our communities, and that was utilized against us. And so we were developing critical literacies with and for our students. And so that served as a demographic threat. It served as a political threat. (laughs) Yeah, smart Mexican-American kids or Chicanos or, or indigenous kids with knowledge, that's dangerous. Kids that can read and write and speak is a danger, right? It's a political threat to some folks and who are in defense of their communities, who are advocates for their communities. No one came around when um, our kids were failing miserably. We had court-ordered audits on our program, and that was funded by the state of Arizona, and they kept coming back in our favor. I mean, we closed the academic achievement gap. Students were developing a positive image of themselves and their community, etc. And so that really served as a threat. So wild thing, you know, in court, in the federal courts and the Ninth Circuit, these politicians were asked, you know, so the judges were dumbfounded. They were like, well, these kids are closing the academic achievement gap. Isn't that what your position as a state superintendent is should, something that y'all should be celebrating? You know, Horn and Hoopenthal respond, no, it doesn't matter if, if these kids are achieving academically. What they're teaching is anti-American rhetoric, et cetera. So it was just, and the judges almost, you know, they had to to stop themselves from laughing at these folks. So there's so much there. But listen, you mentioned that, you know, you are in California, right? And you had to leave Arizona, right? Yes. In the midst of all this. And it really, like, seriously, go to Latino Rebels 2011, 2012. Also, Fernanda Santos, our editorial director, was covering this for the New York Times back in the day. And there's some great articles about that. But in 2012, you were let go, right? You were in the midst of this extreme opposition to, you know, you were let go. Yes. And I contested our board of education. I contested our superintendent that this was a racist law and and we have to challenge it in the courts. They refused. And although it took seven years, we ended up, uh, we were right. You know, you were. But talk to me about back then, because you as an educator, right? You're fighting, you know it's the right thing. And also, this came around the same month, I remember this, and I I think I congratulated you on Facebook. You won this award from the Zen Education Project for your work, teaching a more complex understanding, right, of, you know, this is the reason you got the award, because you were teaching a more complex understanding of our history beyond the lessons we find in textbooks, which, to be honest, there are few, there are few of them. So, that was ironic, huh? Yeah, and I was I was fired a week after, but I think that award was really reflective of our collective within the Mexican American yeah. Studies program. I was just the figurehead and the, and the burro, if you will, 
the one that worked hard, but but you're a good bur- a burro in all the sense of the you know in the positive sense of the burro. Yes. You're not the burro yes. estupido. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like you were smart as fuck. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a book burro genius, but we could um, yeah. That's a, that's who you are. I'm that should be your tag name. Yeah, I don't want to <laughs> pop my collar too much, but it was wild in that sense. But you know, it really backfired on folks. Right now, ironically. I just got out of a professional development meeting working with teachers. I'm working with an educational consultant with the Chicanx Institute for Teaching and Organizing. We're working in several districts in California. I had to step out of the classroom after 25 years. I served in South Central Los Angeles, serving a beautiful community, a black, brown, um, you know, really heterogeneous, right? We're not all Latino community. We're not all Mexican. And it's just been a great experience for me. But this whole thing has backfired where you have the largest state in the union in California mandating an ethnic study graduation requirement. So the work that I'm doing right now, uh, aside from adjuncting at Cal State Long Beach, teaching Chicanx Latinx studies, I'm working with teachers on how to implement this on a statewide level. I never would have thought 10 years ago that we'd be doing this. But there, here you are. But everything has a purpose. And But let's talk about 2017. Let's talk about the... um. That's the year of the trial. When was the year? When did? Yeah, it was 2010 to 2017. Judge Wallace Tashima of the Ninth Circuit ruled in December of 2017. That's right, because I knew it was kind of coming around to because we actually covered that. So let's focus on the trial, but also now you're looking at what's happened in Florida, right? And you're sitting there. I'm sure you're sitting there watching. And you're like, okay, you know, burro genius already. I know what's up here. Like I've lived this, right? You know, I say that with love, Sean. Yes, of course, of course. So what advice would you give to people who are trying to protect their right right now to a more inclusive and nuanced approach to education, given what you and, you know, the collective out in Arizona and all the wonderful people that I got to know and admire? What would you tell people, given your experience? You know, as I identify as Chicanex, as Chicano, and I stand in solidarity with the Black community, and, uh, anti-Blackness is pervasive and persistent. DeSantis, like you mentioned earlier, is again using these racial-coded appeals to incite this fervor and the, and the racial anxiety. Interestingly, going back to the court case, how our Odyssey versus State of Arizona case is directly related to what's going on in Florida, it is a precedent case, right? So DeSantis is really exposing himself, right, by utilizing these dog whistle politics, these racial coded appeals, saying that African-American history is not legitimate. They're not legitimate forms of knowledge. There's no applicability. I mean, he's just really demonizing and dehumanizing the Black experience. And this might get him into, unfortunately, might get him into uh, the presidency. I mean, we all saw Trump, one on an anti-Mexican platform. So they have this game and this template down. But anyways, our case, Odyssey versus State of Arizona, was utilized initially to stop the Muslim ban. Unfortunately, that went through. It has been utilized, uh, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court as a precedent case to uh, keep DACA going. And then right now, some of the folks that were expert witnesses on our case are working with the folks in Florida to utilize Odyssey again as a precedent case. You know, it's the Legal, I'm not a legal analysis analysis by any means. I, I'm not going to hold you anything. We don't play lawyers on television. I do, I'm, I'm just experienced, but I do know our folks are working in solidarity with the Black community, considering you know Arce versus State of Arizona uh, our expert witnesses. You know that's how we can work in solidarity. It's really critical to work across communities, right? To work in, across our quote unquote racialized communities. That's great because that's what is happening right now. You know, uh, DeSantis has continued this racialization of, of the black community. And so I hope that uh, we could be of assistance, right? I'm currently working with educational collectives, consultants collectives, where we work across communities. We find that to be, you know, we're much stronger working together, a diversity of ideas, of educational approaches, and, and then political approaches to, you know, how are we going to defend these forms of knowledges? How are we going to defend? the attacks that are certain to come. Even in the, you know, quote unquote, progressive state of California, we're continuously dealing with the naysayers, which, you know, they're not basing their critique on any type of educational methodology or any type of substantiation. 
rather they are leaning and depending and on these uh, racial coded appeals and this racial anxiety that the Mexican, the Latinx population is continuing to be the boogeyman. And we're seeing this in Florida with the black community there and how they're being demonized and dehumanized. So this is a definitely an ongoing effort. I'm just fortunate to be a part of a collective and a community that participated and engaged and contributed to some earlier efforts, but there's so much work to be done. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. Your biggest mistake with Black History Month is dot, dot, dot. Only reading books about slavery, racism, oppression, and struggle. Then I went on to say in the comments of the post, let's move beyond exclusively reading books that focus on slavery, racism, oppression, and struggle for Black History Month. Also, incorporate more books that show Black excellence, Black leaders, inventors, scientists, artists, and Black joy. Do this all year long and not just during the month of February. Can you commit to that this year and every year going forward with your children or students? That was the end of my post. After seeing the success of this video, it got me to thinking why this may have struck a chord with so many people. But then I realized it's because America is so divided and many schools are still teaching outdated history that always begins with the period of slavery during Black History Month. I remember growing up, uh, Black History Month wasn't even really acknowledged and celebrated as much as it is now. But apart from that, if we did learn anything about Black people, it was always about the struggle and the pain that Black people in America have faced. Never did I learn about influential Black leaders, except, of course, for the usual top two, and I'm talking about Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Black history is so much more than Dr. King and Rosa Parks. While learning accurate history is important, we need to be teaching kids and adults about Black excellence, Black leaders, inventors, scientists, artists, cowboys, and Black joy to raise a better generation. I also think it's time to stop segregating Black history from American history. Doing this keeps Black Americans' contributions to America separate and not equal. It's okay to talk about the contributions Black people have made to America and other countries around the world year-round and not just during the month of February here in the U.S. Can we start acknowledging, teaching, and learning our shared history? Can we ever get there? I know that may sound like a tall order for a lot of people because it really is. But I think it can just start by you wanting to make that commitment. Commit to doing the things that I've said this year and every year going forward. If you have children or grandchildren or if you are an educator, you can start today. You can start this month if you are committed to it and if it's something that you believe in. Obviously, you know, one of the big arguments of Between the World and Me is that race is a social fiction. So when we say white people will cease to exist, 
the idea is the category will too. And racially, the hope would be that black people would too. You know what I mean? Which is, you know, the case that the story makes. It does not mean that white people will be physically eradicated from the face of the earth. But, you know, if somebody wants to do that, they can do it. Well, and it also, I mean, the other thing that it strikes me about that quote and about the way that you write about race, uh, both in Between the World and Me and, and in your novel, uh, there's a phrase you use of people that think they're white or believe that they're white, that it is a belief. So it is a belief right. system. Right. It, is a, it is a social construction. It is a way of people constructing a social reality together that is imbued with history and material consequences. But fundamentally, it isn't actually a biological reality. Yeah, and, and I, that's the argument that's being made. Um, and actually, I think the elements of that belief system can be seen in this later laws. Take, for example, this notion that um, students should not be uh, uh, um, exposed to anything that makes them feel uncomfortable, discomfort, or any sense of, this is my favorite, personal responsibility uh, for anything that's ever happened in history. Anybody that's ever you know, studied history in any sort of serious way knows that you feel a range of emotions. And 70% of the time, those emotions are not positive, you know, emotions that make you feel good about the world. The goal of education isn't, you know, to uh, tell you that, you know, the world is, is sunshine and rainbows. The goal is enlightenment. The goal is some deeper understanding of humanity. And that's what, you know, you, you, you hopefully are trying to get across uh, to students. This is what's so perverse, right? Because it has, th- this entire backlash was shepherded in under the cover of critical thinking and the left is sort of trying to indoctrinate people. Right. And I want to just play you this little clip from Jonathan Cox, who's this sociologist I spoke to, who I was really just impressed with, who he was talking about what he's trying to do in the classroom, right? right? Like with these two classes on race that he had to cancel because right. of this law. Take a listen. I try to bring in lots of different perspectives and encourage students to do so. So, I mean, like, for example, we talk about something like cultural appropriation. I might present one article, you know, that talks about it and saying, like, this is what it is. Here's why it's really negative. And another article that presents a completely different view. And then we'll talk about it in class so that students, you know, I don't want them to just uh, swallow stuff and actually tell them all the time. Like, like don't take what I'm saying just to be the, the, the pure 100 percent truth. Right. Like, go out and do some research on your own. I want you to be critical thinkers. Um, so I really try to actively fight against that caricature that you kind of expressed uh, about what people think of in my classroom. And I also don't go in leading with my opinions. I very rarely, almost never share my own opinion, right? I'm much more interested in the thoughts and ideas that students are bringing with them. I mean, that's a guy who's not going to, who's not, didn't teach two courses at the largest state school in Florida because of the DeSantis law. Right, right, right. You know, the fascinating part of me is, was it only two years ago that there was this notion that kids on campus were too soft and, you know what I mean, needed to be coddled and, and you know, this, that, that. And now we have literal laws saying that. We have actual laws, not, you know, beliefs, not ideas, but actual on the books laws saying that, you know, uh, students, you know, in the most recent case, in an AP class of all places, you know, are somehow too sensitive to be exposed to ideas that, you know, give them a sad you know, it, 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 it is, you know, utter, utterly ridiculous. And it's, it's so clearly not education. The point of it is not education. I'm a teacher, too. I teach down at, at Howard University. Um, I expose my kids to all sorts of things from all sorts of perspectives that I do not hold myself. There is no way in the world I could be a black writer and say, I will never read anybody that's racist. I'll never read anybody that's sexist. It just it just you, you couldn't live. You couldn't practice your craft if you were like that. You know, I mean, the irony is like you and I have there are people and I'm not going to name them who like. You and I have talked about like writers we like or don't like, yeah. writers who like whose politics we don't like, but you're like, yo, that guy can write. But the crap. <laughs> <He's>, the crap. <laughs> that, that's a good argument. And, and you have to do that. Like you, you have to, you know, and, and even if you completely disagree with a person, how will you know what you disagree with if you don't read them? If you don't read them seriously, how will you know? The thing, and then the one layer deeper than that that I find, and I don't know if people have looked at this, but I, I spent some time on this, like this stu- the, the Florida law. It's not just that, it, you know, there's the education aspect to it, but there's also a degree to which it is essentially stipulating a civic creed officially for the state of Florida that is an ideology. And so here's like an example. This is a thing that you can't teach in Florida. Mm-hmm under Florida law now, although the law is currently enjoined. Such virtues as merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblindness are racist or sexist, or were created by members of a particular race, color, sex, or national origin to oppress members of another race, color, sex, or national origin. Now, you may or may not agree with that as a thesis. Right. But that is now the official state creed right. of Florida right. that you can't say that racial colorblindness was invented as a means of furthering racial oppression. Right. 
I, yeah, I, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> I mean, I really, honestly, you know, when I read that, it sounds like somebody else who was an activist wrote that and fed it to the legislatures. It's so weirdly specific. Completely you almost agree. can detect the hand of somebody else there working. You know, um, no need to name names, but um, it, it's absurd. It's absurd. And it's, you know, just another highlight for why people like that, you know, shouldn't be involved in the kind of decisions that are made in the classroom. To step back for a second, where do you, you know, you wrote this, I remember writing this really good piece of the Atlantic about Trump, where you call him the first white president, sort of some, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but making the point about, again, how whiteness is constructed, that, that point. only in relation to the backlash against that was the, point. the first black president could there be a white president in the way that we understand whiteness, right? right. It's in right. contrast. Right. We had this moment in 2020 amidst the pandemic and George Floyd's death in the aftermath, and these historic, by all metrics, I mean, it just people counting in the streets, like maybe the largest civil rights protest we've ever had in this country. This incredibly strong backlash against it playing out in places like this. And now here we sit in 2023, just a few weeks after the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of Memphis police. And where do you see things in this kind of push and pull? Um, I believe it, I'm kind of excited And here's why. Um, The history of this country in terms of these backlashes is that they generally come and are generally the most ferocious when um, the forces that would like to maintain the status quo are most afraid. You you can't understand uh, redemption without understanding reconstruction and without understanding reconstruction as an actual threat. Uh, you can't understand the black, the backlash that came after the civil rights movement without understanding how much certain people perceive the civil rights movement as an existential threat. And I think it's the same thing here. You, you, you gotta, you know, take a second and, you know, uh, step back. If you look at, uh, uh, the culture and you look at who's present and you look at who has the authority, you know, like, uh, you know, I hate to, you know, come close to home, but you look at like, say a movie like Wakanda forever that is on the verge of making a billion dollars. This matters because people look around and they see who is holding place. It was the same thing for Barack Obama. The idea that the uh, equivalent of American royalty was held by somebody who only generations ago, their very conception would have been illegal. This, you know, this disrupts the conception of what America is and it frightens people. And so you get backlash. You know what I mean? And so I actually take it as a sign of strength. You know what I mean? For where the movement is right now. But we always knew this was going to happen. I mean, the expectation that, you know, the war would just be won and that would be it. You know, uh, it just, you know, was always fantasy. Yeah. And sometimes those I mean, those backlashes can be dangerous, too. They definitely I mean, and, can. And, and I don't want to diminish that. Right. Yeah. And not I, diminishing that at all. And, and I think, you know, we, you're seeing it. Um, you're seeing it in schools. You're seeing it um, in, in certain ways in which, like criminal justice laws, backlash against bail reform, all these different places where progress is made. You can see the backlash politics being marshaled. And I just think that's because the idea is sticking. Like, how does the 1619 project end up in an executive order? Like, think about that. Like, what piece of journalism can you remember ending up in an executive order? I mean, no piece of journalism I've ever produced has any me either, brother. <laughs> Has any president ever cared that much me about either, one way or the either, other? Me like, either. And, and so what that means is people are afraid. Right. That means something is, is, is sticking in the minds. They're actually using the levers of the state. It doesn't mean it's not dangerous. I want right, to be really, right, really clear right. about that. But it's also a statement of how threatened they feel and, you know, the, the effect that some of this work has had. You know, it's interesting you say that because I do think, like, I am I'm constantly trying to keep these two tracks in my head of the material and the ideological. Yeah. So it's like... There is so much force and, and, and momentum behind these new, these ideas. They're not new ideas. They're old ideas about racial equality, about deconstructing whiteness, about taking apart. And then I look at the material and it's like, what's the racial wealth gap? That's a great point. What's happening? Have we closed the life expectancy gap between black and white people? We have not. Is it staying the same? It It is. is And I, I'm always wrestling in my head, like what, those two things, because it does feel like the ideas are having ascendancy and they do have a force and they are scared because they are. Right. And then you look at the material aspect and it's like, it feels like a less encouraging. I I think though, those on the other side understand that one undergirds the other, that if, uh, in ideas of of white supremacy become less, uh, uh, ingrained in the body politic, 
then when folks look around at the jail system, maybe they actually really do start asking questions. When folks look around at who's poor and who's not, maybe they really do start asking questions in a way that they didn't before. Um, I think of it like the foundation of a building. You can chip away, chip away, chip away, and you can see progress, you know what I mean, in the chipping away, but the building might still be there. You know what I mean? And so it is that the edifice of white supremacy still is there, even as the foundation, you know, is, 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 is being chipped away. We've just heard clips today, starting with Today Explained, explaining why teaching black history is threatening to white people. What Next discussed the widespread chilling effect of banning education topics. Counter Stories made a connection between the erasure of culture in residential schools for Native children and the erasure of black history studies. Latino Rebels Radio looked back about a decade to Arizona, fighting a similar battle over Latinx history being taught in schools. Here We Read pitched a more expansive Black history and the need to teach it year-round. And Chris Hayes on All In spoke with ta Coates about the backlash to a fear of discomfort for white people. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from At Liberty from the ACLU discussing their lawsuit in Oklahoma seeking to strike down their educational ban. The law creates a, a situation whereby if a, if a teacher presents one of these quote-unquote divisive concepts, even in the context of saying this is what some people thought even though it was wrong. You can't even mention these things according to this law. And if you do, you risk your teaching license. And then and now looked at history as being similar to a disease that needs to be carefully analyzed to help keep us healthy. If we live symbiotically with history, if it's part of us, like bacteria in our guts, like a cultural meme, how do we analyze it? A biologist would isolate a symptom, ask what's causing it, why is it there, what's its purpose, where does it lead, is its cause environmental, genetic, follow the chain of clues. To hear that, and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And the last thought I have for you today is just, just to add something that hasn't been mentioned much, I don't think, in this whole conversation, which is the Streisand effect. That's the phenomenon of information becoming more interesting and more widespread after an effort to suppress it. So, on one hand, I don't want to downplay the effectiveness of deplatforming, which is effectively what these sort of educational bans is doing. Taking educational curricula out of schools will definitely impact the number of kids who are exposed to that information, particularly those exposed to it by qualified educators. However, removing, let's say, art class because of budget cuts will not have the same impact as removing black history because it's too dangerous and scary and little child brains will be made to feel uncomfortable if they're exposed to it. In the former example, kids aren't going to rush to learn all the art history they're missing out on. But in the latter example, making a big, loud deal out of banning a topic will definitely pique the interest of a lot of students and adults alike who will just be curious what all the hubbub is about. I mean, if they're trying to ban it, then it must be juicy, right? Now, of course, what'll happen is everyone will be disappointed when they learn how tame critical race theory actually is compared to the demonic force of racist evil it's being described as. But I suppose that'll be a lesson in and of itself. 
As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail, or you can now send a text message as well to 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.